0: Hello, my name is Brendan DeCora, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Pro Audio Profiles. Here, I'm going to interview recording engineers, mixers, producers, and others in the pro audio field. Together, we're going to learn how you can make amazing records that can give your listeners goosebumps. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to present the very first episode of the show, featuring Ken Sluter. He's a multi platinum engineer, producer, and mixer who's worked with the likes of Morrissey, Weezer, and Jerry Lee Lewis, among many more, of course. Let's get started. Today, I want to just talk about um, how to create magic in the studio. And I know as an engineer and producer, that is an unanswerable question. Like, it's, you know, there's so many different variables. But, and also, I know that you engineer and produce. Mm. And how does that vary if you're engineering what do you what do you kind of do to 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 help the artist with that versus producing
1: yeah yeah that's that's a great question and it's a timely question because uh for a long time I didn't take any producing gigs I mean not that my phone's ringing off the hook or anything like that. I just didn't sell my services as a producer when I lived in Chicago I produced a lot of indie stuff and that was in an era in the 90s my exposure to what an engineer producer was—it was almost one and the same thing. You know what I mean? Because because that was all my producer heroes. You know the Butch Vigs, John Agnello, all these people—they were all engineer producers. And so it was sort of like the same job in a way. At least that's the way I saw it. And then when I moved to LA, I just was trying to find as much work as I could. So I thought to myself. If I want to get hired by producers, maybe it's not the smartest thing in the world to sell yourself as a producer. And this is still in the era of the the engineer-producer era. But just recently, I've started getting back more into producing proper. And now I kind of have a different perspective over it as far as what the roles are. And if I was to summarize it into one sentence, the engineer is responsible for the recording. The producer is responsible for the record. You know what I'm saying? Right. The producer is responsible, well, for one, there's an inherent conflict of interest when you get hired as a producer because usually it's the band or the act picks you to produce them, but it's the label or the management company or who's ever financing it is your client, and sometimes the band wants one thing and the client wants something else. Right. And you have to figure out a way to like serve both of those people at the same time. Exactly. Uh, So, and, and that's true of, I think that's always been the case. Like that's, that's, that's not new. Uh, But in general, I find that if I'm hired by our producer to engineer, I'm not really hired to be creative. I'm hired to be resourceful and there's creativity within that resource but it's not you're not the one that's collaborating with the artists, maybe on a sonic level right. you are, but it's a dance that you do right because some producers want the engineer to get really involved really deep into the into yes. the weeds of the chords and here's the arrangement. Some producers don't want you involved at all in that kind of stuff. just focus on the microphones and the sounds right
0: and how does it vary when like an artist is producing themselves and you're kind of co-producer and working with them and you're not so much concerned about a label or someone you know an artist that's more independent
1: that's a good one i mean i i feel like any artist who's made a couple records is just the de facto co-producer you know what i'm saying (laughs) yeah it's one thing if a band comes in or a band or an act comes in and and they've never done this before and you're going to be the one who's going to guide them through the whole process that's probably not production but at a certain point their creativity and what they're bringing to the table as an act is beyond like what you would expect of an act now they want they have opinions about what studio we're going to record in how we're going to mm-hmm. do it now they're your co-producer of you course, know and uh of and if you're the engineer in that if you're hired to engineer in, in that capacity You're kind of the de facto co producer as well, whether you're getting hired to be that or not. You know what I mean? And uh, well, that's just a tricky dance as well, because for one, you know, have you ever shown up for a session and you talk to the engineer and he's like, well, I'm really producing, but you know, I'm only hired as the engineer. And you're just like, oh boy, like we've all (laughs) been there a thousand times. You know what I mean? I think that now, like, I'm old enough and I've been doing this long enough where. I try to avoid, as much as I can, getting into the situation where you're hired as, as one role, but then you get into it, and right. you know every ship needs a captain. Yes. You know what I mean? And, uh, and oftentimes, you get hired to engineer, you realize that they don't know what they're doing, and, and, and they knew instinctively that you were the safety net, and then now you're resentful because you're either, A, not getting credited for the production work that you're doing or b not getting paid as a producer you know but at the same time i would also say that you know i mentioned you know my wife is a photography producer and so for her that's putting together budgets hiring crew getting permits for locations you know like Mm -hmm. doing estimates and granted you know and a record producer doesn't have to get a permit for a location. like some of this stuff is very admin stuff but in general, unless you can like hire like a admin person to handle it, like you are actually doing, you know, I just did a thing I was producing and I it's like I spend more time well, not more, but you're spending as much time making sure everyone's parking is sorted, that there's a hotel room, you know what I mean? That, you know, where where's the bathroom? Oh, we'll ask the producer. I mean I mean right, you, right. you've been there and, and you see it
0: happen and, and Well, so that's that's yeah. a common thing is people confuse production with the creative versus the logistical side yeah and there's so many people that you know say oh i'm i'm a producer and then they write the track and do all the creative stuff and forget to the whole other side of it of booking the studios and scheduling and arranging musicians and all that kind of stuff for sure well and the other thing is is that i think that uh you know, r-
1: rather than being like the old man, like get off my lawn mentality of like that's not a record producer. This is I myself have had to redefine what a record producer is, and uh, I don't mean this with like a tone or a negative tone. But we're in an era now where like if you make a beat, you're a producer. Yes, you know what I mean. And yeah. and I just you know, it, it, in my opinion, a producer either is a is is someone who started out as an engineer. Or a writer producer, which which there's always been, you know, Smokey Robinson, you right. know what I mean, like like from the get go, there's yeah. always been writer producers, and then there's this sort of I'm a record executive, but I'm a producer, the the, the Ted Templemans, you know what I mean, right. the guys who kind of like they're coming at it from the label point of view, and uh, mm-hmm. and all those people I envy their careers because they, for, I mean, and I could go on on and on about like Ted Templeman, but well, first of all, he was a musician, he was in a band, had a good ear. But I think that uh, there was an era of record making where the producer would would either be hired by the label or maybe they would even help you get signed, do your demo, help you get signed. But there was a lot of trust involved. The artists would show up. And if the artists knew, you know, it's my understanding, like, with, for example, the Van Halen, Ted Templeman scenario is that those four dudes just wanted to, if they thought Ted liked it, they knew they were in good shape. You know right, what I mean? Right. Whereas now sometimes you get hired to produce and it's like, I want you to produce until I don't like what you're saying anymore and then I'll just pull the next guy in. You know exactly, what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a tricky thing because because the thing is, is that unlike being an engineer or or, or or unlike being a piano player, like you could go around and say you're a piano player all day, but if you sit at a piano like and someone says like play me some piano, if you can't do it, you're not a piano player right. you know what i mean whereas <laughs> a producer if you sit back on the couch and read the newspaper and everything goes smooth and that's a hit record then you're a good record <laughs> producer even if you didn't do anything other than hire the engineer right you know what i mean right. so in other words
0: there's no yeah there's but I was, that is a key that is a key choice it's like half of production is knowing who to hire for the job right you know, whether it's a session musician or the engineer you know, well, it's all well, about y- that. And,
1: and there's a lot of stuff, for example, there's there's some really good session players I know that I know if I hired them on my session, after take four, they go, ah, we got it. And I'm like, no, I don't think we have it. And, <laughs> and, 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 and so I got to find the person that has the chops that I want them to have. But at the same time, if I'm still searching for something and I don't think they have it, they're not going to dismiss me. You know what I'm saying? So right. I need to find... Those musicians that are in that sweet spot. Sometimes you hire these guys and they show up and they're just like, "Well, uh, you know, Russ Tittleman never asked for four takes, you know." And it's like, "Well, <laughs> I don't know
0: what to say, man. You <laughs> right, know what I mean? Right. Here we are. Right. I
1: don't think we have it yet, you know." <laughs> right. So, so, so that's that's yeah. Hiring the and, and and to your point, yeah. Putting the right team together is is a is a bold creative choice in Absolutely. and of itself. Yeah, yeah. for sure.
0: So as an engineer, like, obviously you engineer and you're a mixer as well. Um, When you're engineering, is there any certain workflows or methods you use to help people get great performances? A lot of it is all on the preparation. But is there anything in particular that you can think of?
1: Well, I think, uh, I mean, preparation is a really good thing. Uh, For example, and I mean, you and I have been assistants together and we've watched the whole Mm -hmm. setting up a session if you're working for the studio, you want to have everything ready to go to the best of your ability before the artist walks in the room because you don't want to control the session creatively, but you want to be you want to have a handle on what's going to happen. Of course. And if the artist comes in and you're not 100% set up yet, even though they might change everything, then they get the momentum of the session. You know what yeah. I mean? And now you're reacting to them as opposed to being one step ahead of them, you're one step behind them. Right. So as an engineer, you kind of want to be one step ahead. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to set up this microphone here because I think that the guy's going to want to do a you know a final vocal. You know what I mean? And maybe we won't use that microphone, but why not just get it set up? You know, just sort of thinking two, two steps ahead. I think that helps. I think getting a great headphone mix really helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I like to do, which is... And I think I'm lonely with this, is once we get into overdubs, I just wanna give them my mix. You know what I'm saying? Right. I do that and, too. And if and and if and if I need to give them a mix of something that's odd that's gonna help them perform better with some weird little mix, then that's what we're gonna listen to in the control room. Mm-hmm. Because I feel uncomfortable sending them a mix that I can't hear and monitor myself. And uh and when I say good headphone mix, I don't just mean like a good balance, but I mean well, I mean, we're talking from an engineer's point of view. That means having a great sounding headphone system. Right. Which are fewer and farther between now. As, right. as we've gotten headphone mixes that are that have more routing flexibility, they don't sound as good as the old school giant power amps, like yes. powering headphone systems to make the headphones sound great so that when the singer is singing... They feel like they could sing as loud as they want because their headphones will go as loud as they need to go. Right. You know what I mean? If this, if when the singer's singing, when they hit a certain point and their headphones start folding, they you're not going to get a good performance. Right. They're going to be
0: scared to project to that open much. up. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so
1: I think that that kind of thing is really important. Yeah. I think like having pencils and colored, you know, and, and paper handy. I mean, this sounds like you know. It, that's sort of the assistant's job, but it's the engineer's job to make sure the assistant has done their job, right. making sure that you have uh, water, yeah, warm water,
0: even like a tea setup t- or something.
1: Tea, uh, you know, throat lozenges, all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But then the other thing that I really think matters, and I, and this is with all performers, is uh, looking at what you want to do and breaking it down into like manageable like chunks of of stuff. You know what I mean? Like, for example, if you have like some world class singer, like a Aretha Franklin level person, they might want to come in and and they're looking to perform the entire track in one go, right? Mm-hmm. And you might get a second take, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And and you might not. And and then you have certain singers that you come in and it's like we're going to record this section by section, and uh, the pre chorus doesn't even matter you know what I mean? In other words, all we care about is this verse melody. And then we're going to just focus on this verse melody. And then once we get the first verse, we're just going to move right over to the second verse. I don't even want you to hear the pre-chorus. I don't Mm -hmm. want you to hear the chorus, you know, because the chorus is in a different key. If you keep hearing that chorus Mm -hmm. in your headphones, we'll say, for example, I mean, mean, this is radical, you know, and this is sort of, you got to know what kind of artist you're working with am i working with the kind of artist who's going to sing this thing from top to bottom mm-hmm. or are we going to craft this little by little sometimes if you're working with a younger band and you have a singer who's like a little pitchy or just tentative about their performance in general like some of the little tricks that i'll do is uh, you know say the verse is 16 bars long you have a verse part one mm-hmm. you know verse one a verse one b right but the intro of the song is in a different key than the verse. But you need, but they're going to come in on the downbeat of that verse. Right. But they're hearing a different key, and then they start singing. They're in a new key. Well, you need to give them pre-roll, right? Mm-hmm. You need to give them pre-roll. And what's happening is is that their brain can't get into that new that whether it's a chord or key. Mm-hmm. So sometimes what I'll do, and this is crazy, is I'll say, "I want you to sing the first half of the first verse." In the second half. Right. So that way your pre-roll is still in that same key signature, right. so they're still getting into it, or I'll say, listen, I want you to sing the first half, you know, if, if I mean, this is getting really, like, technical, but say the first verse is four lines. I'll say, I want you to sing lines one and two, and then sing lines one and two again. Right. And all we care about is those two lines. You know even, what I mean? And what happens is the first one's a warm up, and then they nail it on the second one. And exactly. then when they're gone, you just move all those over and you build your comp, exactly. whatever you need to do to get the performance. Yeah. And it might seem like tedious and like you're making more work for yourself, but it's a lot less work than than trying to Melodyne a performance that right. isn't there. Right. Not that we won't go look at Melodyne and yeah, do all that stuff course. as well down the road.
0: And even like the intensity level too. Like you said, do you do you know, verse one and then skip the chorus and go to verse two, you know, like another reason, even if it is in the same key, like let's say the chorus is much louder, they're more way more taxing into it. on their voice. Yeah. It's you, like you wanna just keep them in that chill vibe. Right. And that's that similar sort of, you know, mode so that they don't get, you know, yeah. All yeah. out of whack with it.
1: And, and and then once they get into the chorus, which is usually like the most exciting part, it's usually nine times out of ten, like in a higher register Their voice is warmed up and they know like, hey, we've already got all the verses. We got the pre-chorus. All we got to do is just nail this one little bit. And sometimes I'll do a thing where, uh, and I do this with musicians a lot too. If we have four lines, I'll say, do lines one and three, five and seven. Just do one, three, five, and seven. Okay, now we're going to go do lines two, four, six, and eight. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I do that with myself if when i'm overdubbing on on stuff playing bass or guitar if suddenly i'm like oh this is what i want to do i don't have the chops to do that i go okay well there's this a riff and the b riff i mean the, the most classic example of that is uh there's this producer uh well engineer producer mixer songwriter guy named phil thornley english guy he was the bass player in the cure for a while and then he like Oh, he was the engineer of Duran Duran's Rio. So he was like a guy okay. who was just deep into. It. Yeah. And he was like on a podcast or something, or and he was talking about, like, I'm the bass player on Love Cats, and he said, and they wanted to do it on an upright bass, and I have never played an upright bass before, <laughs> and so when I got it, I just on one track I went ba dum bum ba
0: don't
1: and then on the next track I went don't do don't. <laughs> and, 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 and. and when you put the two put together, together it's just That's funky line. like new orleans almost like level <laughs> like like wow listen to that groove nice from a dude who had never had touched the instrument before right but he knew how to organize himself and sort of mm-hmm. say like this is what we need to do to get this track mm-hmm. you know what i mean and i think that a good producer uh knows like okay this is a person who's just going to perform it down this is a person that we just need to craft it you know what i mean right. and and it's a frustrating for me if i'm with the musician and they're like oh no man i just want to do it i just want to i just, just want to do it as a performance and you're like we've done that four times like and <laughs> what's happening is is well you know like you never hit the first note of the chorus correctly because you're out of breath because the verse right. was a mouthful right you know what i mean i mean you've seen <laughs> all this like stuff right all the time yeah. yeah yeah
0: so then what about i mean obviously we both worked at a variety of studios and you know not everyone has the budgets or ability to work in all the best studios. Yeah, what are some considerations when you have to work in like a subpar studio?
1: I think the biggest consideration is, uh, well, I'll say this: like when I'm working in an A-level studio versus like a like a cheaper studio, mm-hmm. it, it's it's more to do with how long is it going to take me to get the good sound. <laughs> Like, we'll get the good sound, right? But how long is it going to take me? You know what I mean? You know, can will the artist tolerate, like, I mean, this is such a cliche, but for example, it's like, okay, who's the artist I'm working with? What's the bathroom look at, like at the studio? Like, how's the parking <laughs> at the studio? I mean, all that stuff, right. when you're producing, it really needs to be considered. <laughs> how far away is it? You know what I mean? Is there oh. is there food around? Can the studio build the label for the food? You know what I mean? Like if I, if 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 you work at a studio where they go, we don't handle any of the food stuff at all. We don't put a budget together. Well, that's fine for an indie rock thing where everyone's just going to go grab some burritos at the food truck. But if it's the kind of thing where it's like, no, like this is these people want to eat like proper food. I got six people in the room. We need like it's going to be like three hundred bucks a day in food. Right. If they don't, if they're not willing to put that on the bill and bill that to the label, then then we're not going to work at that studio (laughs) i mean it's really that simple you know uh so there's all that but part but a big part of it is is that you know in in an a-level studio like the expectation is is you walk in and you're ready to go Mm -hmm. so like if you have an 11 a.m downbeat the engineer can show up at 10 30 walk around make sure everything's Mm -hmm. good and by 11 like we're we're rolling you you
0: know right
1: in a smaller sort of lower budget studio it's you know the clutches on the mic stands don't work and mm-hmm. and and you know and stuff like it's
0: the little, little things little, a bunch of little stuff. and they
1: all add up and if you're gonna um, camp out like in a studio like that for two weeks doing guitar overdubs which i haven't done in a long time who <laughs> I mean who people don't even have the budgets to do that kind right. of thing anymore uh then that's no problem it's like the whole first day you're just gonna be sort of working out the kinks and getting Mm -hmm. it together but then once you're settled in it's cool you know uh gear doesn't matter as much anymore because you can bring in some gear you know what i mean or or you know i mean in in living in la you know you can rent if the studio doesn't have a 47 it might be cheaper to go to a cheap studio and rent a 47 yeah than to go to a big studio although Mm -hmm. that being said I mean, the rental houses aren't what they used to be. I think maybe yeah. the pandemic has made it worse, you know. But it's, uh, it's, you know, I think that when 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 I moved here and when uh, we've been here roughly about the
0: same time, about the same time, yeah.
1: Anything you needed, you could have in about an hour. Yeah, you know what I mean. You could but have Even delivered. that has
0: changed a lot. Yeah, you know? it's like if it's after five o'clock, they're all closed. You can't get nothing. That's right. Yeah,
1: that's right. So so again, you have to you have to plan more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find like if uh, I mean these these are the funny things. If a studio has weird air conditioning, I mean, it, which all studios do, I've never been <laughs> in a studio that I wasn't constantly, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. But like you know when when you're recording a lot of guitars, that that becomes a consideration. You know what I mean? Like That's true. like the room that we're in now. Every morning I got to heat the room up, and it takes about an hour before these guitars really settle in where they where right. they where they're happy. Right. You know. And and if you're recording like a string session, you know what I mean, like right. a, like a like a string quartet, then that really really matters, Absolutely. You know? uh, but they all have their place. I would say that I mean, the sort of what I guess he used to call it, project studios or stuff. I think those studios seem to be in the most fear of uh, going extinct, just because people can do so much out of their house. Right. You know what I mean? People, you can do so much now just in your home Mm -hmm. you know so uh
0: well like you said no one even has the budget for a guitar overdubs because you can go home and do that
1: yeah you You can go home and do it and uh there's some plugins that sound really good now you know what i mean and and if you're and if you disagree you're not paying attention you know what i mean that's 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 the way i feel about it you know i i considered like am i gonna build a little booth here for vocal overdubs first of all you know, guitar overdubs, well, I don't really care about guitar overdubs because because uh, I'm probably going to, if I'm cutting guitars here, it's probably going to be just directly into the computer because it's going to be more about crafting, crafting something as opposed to, like, if it's some hot shit guitar player, then we're going to go book a room, you know what I mean? Right. Then we're going to go book a room, right. you know? Uh, and vocal booths sound terrible to me, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> if you put a really nice microphone in, like, one of these, like, vocal booths that people build in the corner of their garages it sounds sounds (laughs) terrible like why wouldn't you and 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 i feel like if i'm cutting vocals in here with the singer it's because again we're crafting it and there's going to be a lot of hey try this try this Mm -hmm. and and the less we're pushing buttons and talking to each other through headphones the better it is that said i have had a couple artists who they like the booth like they like to feel they like the separation they like to feel like they can just be alone in their own thoughts right. and uh and 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 so that has its yeah. place you know yeah,
0: for sure for sure you've been doing uh more uh Atmos projects recently and i'd love for you to touch on that i know it's a, a new world and ever changing um but if you want to touch on that
1: sure sure i mean in general well i, I mean i mean to, to preface that i would say that in my indie rock world in Chicago, even though this wasn't the way, by the '90s it was very much like there was starting to become like superstar mixers. You know what I mean? Like your mm-hmm. Andy Wallaces and Clear Mountain and the guys who just mixed. Right. Uh, but in my little world, a little indie rock band would come in and we would record and mix the record often in one session. You know, and uh, and so I was always like a bit of a mixer, but not really a mixer. Mm. But in uh, 2014, I started working with Joe Chicarelli on that uh, Morrissey record, and it was like he's like, I have to have this thing turned in in like a week and a half. Like, I need you in one room. We had another guy in another room, and it was like four mixers mm-hmm. all like putting this record together together. And so he just started sending me stuff to mix, and so I started really focusing on mixing. And I never had made the decision of like. I'm a mixer now, I'm not an engineer. Mm-hmm. But slowly over the years, I'm like, hey, I'm recording drums like less. I'm spending less time in the studio. Right. And so then when the Atmos thing came along, which which I'm still even now just, well, I, I'll get to exactly my role in it in a, in a bit. But uh, it was certainly, I was hearing examples that I thought were impressive. I was hearing some things that I didn't like at all. Mm-hmm. But the thing for me was, is that, if I identify as a mixer and not even like a level mixer or B level mixer, but just somebody who like that seems to be how, how I'm staying busy and here's this new music mixing format. I just want to be a part of it. Right. You know what I mean? I just want to want to be a part of it. I don't want someone else to at most mix my original mix if possible. That's my
0: worst fear, honestly. That's partly why I started doing it too is because I realized that it's, you know, if you have an iPhone with the AirPods, that's the default setting on Apple Music. Yeah. So that's the first thing you hear. And if my name is on a mix, and it someone else did the Atmos mix, it's like
1: and it's bad. Yeah, I gotta
0: it, make sure. Exactly, you know, exactly. Good.
1: And uh, and I gotta say that it seems like more and more um, there's there's starting to become a more like a list of more impressive Atmos mixes are are starting to happen. Right. Are starting to emerge. Where I've been staying busy is actually doing, like, rebuilds for other people. Uh, so you're that guy. I am the Atmos I'm, mix. <laughs> I, 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 I am I, uh, ruining the Atmos mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Blame me. Uh, well, I like to think that I'm, I'm part of the solution, not part of the problem. I mean, but part of the problem is not just anyone. And I'm not saying that, like, I'm the guy and no one else can do it. That's not the case. But not everyone can rebuild a mix. Mm. And I think that part of why i seem to be doing okay with it is uh well i like to think that like i'm young enough that i'm still interested in the new technology but i'm old enough that if a record comes in from 1992 i can kind of imagine what that what what environment that thing was mixed in right you know what i'm saying so i'm not gonna put like soothe on all the tracks Mm -hmm. like to recreate something from the 90s because they didn't have that capability right you know what i mean so so say if a catalog mix comes along and uh, and I have to talk generally because a lot of these things aren't released. A of lot course. of them might not get released, so yeah. I can't really name names. Uh, but if a catalog mix comes along, I'll look up like an SOS article or a mix magazine classic tracks article okay. and try to understand like what studio it was mixed in, who mixed it, and you know if it was from 1980, I'm going to say okay, we're going to use Chambers and Plates. You know what I mean? Right. If it was from 1986. We're probably going to use a little bit of lexicon. Right,
0: if it's, some, some AMS, uh, some an AMS, yeah. and
1: you start using period-specific things. Right. If it's mixed in an SSL, then I'm going to only use SSL plugins. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, and SSL console emulation. and You mm-hmm. do all that stuff. There's a lot of unique things about the rebuilding process that uh, things things that I've learned. For one, any production that involved an analog transport you're going to need to vary speed the multi-track to match the mix, huh. and we've always thought that analog is, you know, in other words, digital is as perfect as it gets. It's like right. it's, it's like an atomic. Everyone has an atomic clock running their digital machines. In mm-hmm. other words, you could you could have one digital machine and a separate digital machine running on their own clocks, recording the same audio, mm-hmm. and. You could let them run for hours, and then if you put those audio files into one of them and line them up, they'll probably null and stay nulled for days. Right, that's just the nature of digital. Exactly. Analog, in the course of a four-minute song, they start drifting. Mm-hmm. What's unique is, is you think of analog transports as like drifting in and out, mm-hmm. but it's always drifts in one direction. So the <laughs> point is, is that you you identify with the First moment of the song is on the, the, what we call the comparison master, which is the stereo mix that you're trying to Mm -hmm. recreate, and then you identify the last
0: moment, and then you very speed it. Right, so that those two moments line up.
1: So those two moments line up, and then you play them back against each other until it's like this giant... (laughs) (whistles) (whistles) Nice. You know, and the interesting (laughs) thing about it is, is that isn't just about keeping it in time, but... Now your EQs and everything are so much closer. In other words, if something is like a quarter step off, it's gonna. It's, you might not hear it as a pitch difference; it'll just sound duller right. than something a That's quarter true. step running faster. It's not only the pitch is 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 raised, but it sounds brighter. Right. And so, right off the bat, you're that much closer to to to, to matching the original That's mix. But there's also challenges about, uh, for example, a lot of mixes. The mix is done. And then the mix might be edited a few times, you know what I mean, where they they go, hey, you know, I don't know why, but the second chorus feels better than the first chorus. And they grabbed a razor blade and they chopped that in. Well, you have to account for that, too. You know, you have to make the Atmos mix has to match the original comparison master and uh, uh, it has to match it sonically and then it has to match it timing wise as well. Uh, so, I've done a lot of those where I'll do that and then I'll just print a bunch of stems and then send them off to somebody to spatialize them. And, huh. uh, or maybe I'll even start spatializing right. and then, and then they'll fine tune it, you right. know, uh, which I'm glad to do. It's, uh, it's mm-hmm. definitely become interesting and it's definitely opened my eyes about like that a lot of, a lot of records that sound like there was a lot of time spent in, I think my, favorite era of music is a ton of time spent crafting the production but uh but the mixes came together pretty quickly you know and and you can hear that because it's not as it's not as hard to match it once you sort of make your little plan you know what i mean and have a little strategy stick to it it comes together pretty quick i know i had the chance to hang out with uh Bob Clear Mountain in a private situation, and of course, he was nice enough that I felt like, hey, I'm going to ask him some questions. Mm-hmm. So I had to ask him about Avalon, and I'm like, hey, man, I heard that you were mixing two songs a day. And he said, yeah, yeah, we mix two songs a day on that record, and he goes, and, and also... The studio had like night sessions, so we had to be done at seven o'clock every night. <laughs> so he was spending about four hours, and he said, I think we went back and maybe recalled one of them and, and, and did a new mix. Mm. And this record that is sort of the benchmark for so many people is like an excellent sounding record. Right. The guy was doing these mixes in
0: four hours. <laughs> I mean, well, that blows like, my you, mind. like you said, though, if you know, there's a, a certain era where. They spent most of the time in the studio getting great recordings and yeah. great references and great rough mixes. And so a lot of the times, the mixer doesn't even do that much. Yeah,
1: he's sort of just finalizing it, mm-hmm. fi- finding the – well, and that's the one thing I'll say for anybody who's – who's. Uh, I mean, I think all of us are uh, – I'm working more than ever with people who are, produ- who are self-producing and doing it all at home, mm-hmm. right? And, which – I enjoy doing i'm glad to do you know what i mean but if your rough mix sounds terrible it's because your production isn't together yet right you know what i mean like your rough mix you should be able to like i mean this sounds ridiculous to say but you should be able to start your song and end it and if you're having to and if you feel like you're constantly wanting to hold the faders mm-hmm. move them around you, you haven't you haven't cracked the code <laughs> yet for your production, yet. right? You know, and some of these rough mixes I get are insanely bad. It's like you you don't you don't even know what you have. How mm-hmm. can you even know what you have? How did you know this is ready to send to the mixer right. with this rough mix? Right. And uh,
0: well, part of it too is people. You know, that's the extent of their skill level. Well, yeah. And so they they need someone else to you know bounce ideas off of, and obviously, you know, we're both mixers, and like I know I get files that are all over the map some sound really great the roughs mm-hmm. and some really don't but you know the client is clear like hey i know this isn't a great rough please don't use this as any sort of yeah. example you know here's a reference track that i want to achieve let's go you know feel free to make drastic changes and we'll go towards that yeah you know? yeah so. yeah.
1: well and that's fair and that's fair. it's but it's it's, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, even it, 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 on this sp- specific topic. But it's a tricky thing because uh, you have to manage your expectations, but at the same time, it's like I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that it can't be everything you want it to be. I'm here to try to make it be everything that you, that, 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 that that you want it to be. But it is sort of like when you hear it, you go, okay, I got some work to do here. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm gonna and, have to really roll up my sleeves.
0: And it's also, you know, I always make it very clear that you know how much the client actually likes their mix Mm. because there's some people that love their mix and it's not very good at all right And so then it's like okay well i i can't really take it as far as i want to because i know that they're really attached to it and they don't want to lose that vibe yeah yeah it's a hard
1: thing well and and sometimes
0: sometimes
1: they're hearing something that you're not, and they're not wrong. You know what I mean? Like, I've had situations where, um, well, you were working with me on the, I can say this because it was a long time ago, but I was on that B-52s thing, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And uh, and it, and that's such a fascinating band because as we were doing the little mix, Fred says, oh, the vocals aren't right. The vocal blend isn't right. And in my mind, it seemed like Kate was, like, the more schooled, like, pleasant singer Mm -hmm. and cindy was more of the vibe singer so in my mind it was make kate louder and then you know so you have the good singer loud and then bring in the vibe singer just to add a little vibe to it right and he kept saying no that's not right that's not right and so was literally push the faders down again try to reset my brain Mm -hmm. and then just just out of desperation i i made cindy the loud voice and then i blended kate into her Mm -hmm. it was like make the vibe The thing, and then blend in the good voice. I mean, they both have good voices. I'm not saying, but, 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 uh, and he's like, that's it.
0: Right. Cause that's what they're, cause that's that's what they're they're about.
1: And he knew it. And he knew it. And then you think to yourself, like this guy who's kind of like the carnival barker of the band (laughs) who seems like, like, uh, like like he's like the, the well i mean he is he's like the party yeah, mc guy on absolutely. stage or whatever but he knows the balance that yep. it needs to be he, he knows, knows he's telling balance. me when it sounds like the b52s right. you know right. that was that was an amazing you know and and, and the point being is is that every now and then it's really easy to go like oh here's this track that i don't understand at all i'm going to turn that way down and then come to find out that track should actually be that's the loudest the main thing. yeah exactly. that's that's the thing exactly. that people want to hear
0: exactly I just want to take a quick break and tell you about my free guide detailing my techniques for recording huge snare sounds. Check it out now at brandondecora.com slash huge snare. And now, back to the show. So is there any uh, recent or current projects that you can talk about that you want to mention?
1: Uh, let me see. What have I been working on? That, that's, a, that's a great uh, question. Yeah, I know
0: you mixed the the last Morrissey record. I know that's not super recent, but
1: yeah, yeah, that was unfortunately that record was released in March of 2020, okay. and so like the tour behind it got right. canceled, oh, and geez. no people couldn't go. Out to the, I mean, not that people go out to the store to buy the CDs, but mm-hmm. it was sort of the last thing on people's mind. But right. th- but that's a record that I'm proud of, and that was well, you know, and that was a you know Joe Chiccarelli produced that record, and the thing with him is that his rough mixes come in. And it's sort of the opposite of what we've just been talking about mm-hmm. where where it, the rough mix, it might not, I mean, oftentimes his roughs, if you just juice them up a little bit, you're like, this could be a final mix, mm-hmm. you know? But more than anything, what it does is 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 it tells you, like, here's the point of view of this production. Here. Right. You know what I mean? And then And then you listen to it and you go, and you think to yourself, oh, this sounds so good. And the way he produces is it's. It's all baked into the tracks, you yeah. know what I mean? So in other words, I mean, I've never had a project come in sounding so finished, and then you open it up, and there's like a reverb on the vocal, and like a little bit of delay on the vocal, right. and everything else is just some tracks. There's it's not a bunch old. of plugins on everything. Mm-hmm. There's almost never any plugins on anything. Right. Uh And so you think to yourself, well, I'm going to have this thing done in an hour. It's basically done, but... And I've tried that, and that doesn't work. So, <laughs> so the thing is, is you go, okay, well, what can I do to make this even better? And so what it is is that it's not one or two big things. It's a thousand tiny little things. Right. It's just a, a thousand sort of like, well, let me see. Maybe if I take some of the cymbal bleed out of the Tom microphones, I mm-hmm. can make the drums just a little bit punchier. Like, you know. So what you're trying to do is you're just trying to improve a hundred things by five percent next thing you know you're like yeah this took me all day to do you know what i mean like this is no shortcuts to it you still right. gotta do the work you just have to identify what it is and make sure that you're not screwing up the thing that was always working right. you know and uh and that was the way that record had gone and that's the way like a lot of things that he had done, that, that that i had done with him uh you know a, a sort of semi-recent stuff is the licorice quartet stuff that uh uh I worked on with Roger Manning and Tim Smith and Eric Dover. Uh, Those were three of the four jellyfish guys. And I Mm -hmm. think that the last thing that we did, it was like three EPs and it was released as an album. And that just came out last summer. And that's work that we're proud of. And that was very much brick by brick crafting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That was very much Mm -hmm. uh, just sweating every detail and and, and just taking time. You know what I mean? And it was... uh, it it kind of wore us all out, but we're proud of the, we're proud of it. But again, there was just no, no real shortcuts, you know? Uh, I mean, and I say that, and sometimes, have you ever been on a session where, where the band sounds so good off the floor, you go, God, we're almost done. Like this is, we're almost there. And so it's sort of like, you can get 80% of it sometimes off the floor. Yeah. But then to get the next 20%, to get it across the finish line is, (laughs) is, is brutal. Right. Uh, I'm right now I'm I'm producing a record for an artist named Louise Aubrey. This I'm literally working on now. And and she had done uh I had mixed her last record and I was referred to her Boz Bohrer from Morrissey's band, uh had produced some of her previous records and introduced us and uh and then she wanted to make her LA record and so um we did that at so I got four guys in at East West and okay. uh did that session there and then now i'm just doing like you know a couple the guitar overdubs and keyboards I'm gonna do vocals and mix and uh cool. that's that's a good it, it, but earlier when you mentioned it when you were asking like the difference between engineering and producing it's funny because my mind went right to that project because i i get these tracks back right and they sound great they should at studio two, right yeah. but there was uh one song, where I'm like, w- that's snare drums, what's going on there?" You know. <laughs> so I start combing through the takes, and it's like, take one snare drum sounded good, take two snare drum sounded good, take three halfway through the take, <laughs> something's oh, something, something's jacked, and uh, and and it's changing. It's like, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> and uh, and at that point, I was so deep into like making sure that everyone was hitting the right chords and, hey, play this fill here, do that or whatever, mm-hmm. that we did four more takes with this snare drum. Well, and the funny thing is, is in that studio, the snare drum could be fucked up, but everything still sounds so fucking good that you might not notice. <laughs> right. But if had I just only been engineering that session, it's like an engineer will often be like, oh, the band's getting good. I think we're close to getting the take. Hey, let me hear that snare drum. Okay, Okay, everyone ready for the next take? Yeah. Hey, yeah. let me hear that snare drum real quick. Okay, cool. You know what I mean? Right. And, and I didn't do that. Right. On one song. And it, and then the funny thing was is I had asked the drummer. I said, hey, the drummer has access to like a studio. I just said, hey, uh, I'm going to tempo map this. And can you just replay these drums? And oh, he sent geez. them back to me. And I'm like, no, nah, I think I'm going to go with the broken sound. <laughs> <laughs> the broken sound sounds better. And of course, right. I'm going to, you know add samples in yeah, and do whatever you, you yeah. got to do a little a, a little repair mm-hmm. you know but 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 that was the funny thing is, is that there was just a couple things that once i get the tracks home and i'm listening to them mm-hmm. and i'm listening to them with different ears mm-hmm. and i'm not looking at everyone tapping their foot or getting excited and i listen to it and i go oh i, I could have made a better recording here you know or that's you know right i mean there's pretty huge bumper rails at east west and you know all these a studios is kind of what you're going for is exactly is that that, uh, that's what you're paying for is what you're paying for is is like Mm -hmm. hey even if this stuff like gets fucked up sounding it's still going to be better than you're going to get almost anywhere else (laughs) in the world you know yeah and 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 that's and, and it's also and you can relate to i think we've talked about this before but just the concept of i like everything going through the same preamp and eq you know what Mm -hmm. i mean i i think that my favorite records are the records made where uh it all comes into the desk it's all being recorded more or less the same this whole like i like this preamp for the hi-hat but this is my favorite one for acoustic guitars Mm -hmm. and then for the bottom snare i like i don't think that way at all i just you know and so i do like to work in those rooms where everything is you know and i know that like if you were setting up an external mic preamp in Studio Two or any of the rooms we worked at at East West, one could maybe make the case of like, you know, my vocal chain is something that needs to be portable and travel of with course. or whatever. Like those those instances, but in general, it's not the kind of studio that you need to even bring in any gear. Right. You know, yeah, the and, consoles
0: are so great that it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring in less gear. Mm-hmm. The more, the more I do it. You know. Right and and use less of it even in the room. I can tell you. I mean, this is for engineers, right? This 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 topic. Yeah. Um, I very rarely compress the kick and snare drum to tape, mm-hmm. and just for whatever reason, I felt like doing it on this project, mm-hmm. and it sounded good. Right. Yeah. Now I'm in I'm in there and I'm working on it and I'm like ah, yeah yeah that cymbal's a little loud in the snare drum. I should put a gate on that. I can't gate it the way I normally would because there's so much because it's because it's already compressed, and I like the like my compressor in the box, Mm. and I thought to myself like that was like a peer pressure thing of I'm I'm sitting in the room going like God forbid we don't run signal through that eleven (laughs) seventy six sitting there oh I'll just put the snare on it and it did sound good but now. I hope you like that sound because that's what you're gonna get. Yeah. And if you want to gate it or do, or if you want to get it punchier sounding, whereas the last record I had done that I cut drums on well on the Licorice Quartet record, we had done it on an API, and uh, for whatever reason I I did well I didn't compress the 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 close drum mics because I normally don't, and on that record a lot of it there's no samples at all because I was able to get the. The kick right. and snare right where I wanted to because I still had a little bit of control. Right, right. And so, as much as I admire, and for as many years as I sort of like get the thing sounding like a record into the, into onto the computer, mm-hmm. and that is true. But there are a few things now I'm starting to kind of go. You know what? Some things are right. You or want maybe f- you want the
0: flexibility yeah,
1: later. I, yeah, I might appreciate the flexibility of a few things right. later, and that's and that's right. one of those.
0: Cool. So, there's a couple of quick questions just to wrap up. Yeah. Um, first one is What is your most influential teacher?
1: Okay. Okay. Oh, you know, there's no short answers to any of my yeah. questions. Yeah. No, that's not. Literally for you and your <laughs> listeners. Okay. Well, I, I will tell you this that uh, uh, anyone who knows me or any of the other podcasts, the three biggest influences of people that, uh, as far as working in a studio, like mm-hmm. assisting, uh, jim scott don smith and joe ciccarelli those three dudes right is, are, are like everything is like what would jim scott do here boom 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 right, at least so. What, I mean, what would don smith do here uh but as far as actually because i did go to columbia college in the 80 well in, from 88 to 92 graduated in 92 and there was this teacher and his name was malcolm chisholm and he never gets mentioned in the in in the history of, of recording but he was uh I think he'd been a recording engineer starting in the 50s wow. he started out in the navy and was like a ham radio operator oh. repair guy you know and then and then segued into recording studios he was a chief engineer of chess studios in chicago recorded maybelline mm. uh so he was like talking to us and he and he said uh uh the, the students and he's like you guys like rock and roll and we're like yeah and he's like i was in the room and it was invented <laughs> we're like what are you talking about? He's like, have you ever heard Maybelline? And we're like, Chuck Berry's Maybelline. He's like, yeah. He's like, that's I did that. <laughs> now, and then he moved. He worked with Bill Putnam at Universal in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Moved to L.A. and helped him get United and Western up and running. Right. Worked around here for a while, and uh, uh, and then moved back to Chicago. Worked some more at Chess, some more at Universal. Made a bunch of records, but he was the guy. That, like, he would say to us, and this is, like, just to give it some context, this is, like, 1988, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, the era of, like, Motley crew, gigantic yeah. drum sounds and everything like that. And he'd say, so, uh, to be a professional recording engineer, do you know, you want to know how long it takes, it should take you to get, like, drum sounds? And everyone's like, well, you know, it's been, like, a day and a half or two days. He said, how about 16 bars? He said, when I was recording <laughs> records... And he's mentioning like Dinah Washington, Willie Dixon, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. He said like, "You got those drums sounding good, like right now." You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the sort of era that he was from. And all my other teachers were like guys who were like dicking around with MIDI, and and you know, and, mm-hmm. and 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 like you know, or guys who had worked in recording studios for a few years, got burnt out pretty quick, and then immediately like pivoted into academia. You know what right. I mean? And everyone's like, oh, Malcolm's a kook or whatever. I'm like, but Malcolm did it. You know what I mean? He did it for real, you know? And uh, I have to mention, he was the guy who, in the 80s, was describing to me, uh, you know, back then there was no inline consoles. There was the recording side of the console and then the playback side of the console. And he would line up all of his uh, playback Faders at zero. Mm-hmm. And then all of his recording faders were all over the place. Yeah. And uh and and you didn't see that anymore. And I would talk to engineers throughout the 90s or whatever. And then finally a couple of the guys who knew what that was about said, Well, you, you don't really do that now because now you're you're sort of printing every track to what's the best signal to noise ratio. Of course. You know what I mean? And uh once we hit two inch 24 track, you couldn't do the straight line thing anymore. Because if you didn't want the hi hat loud, you needed to turn it down on the playback side. Otherwise, you had a whole bunch of tape hiss. Right. Well, now we're in Pro Tools land. Now the monitor faders being mm. at zero is very relevant again Absolutely. because you're not dealing with tape hiss. And and to this day, you know, and it, it was like a light bulb moment for me. And now I see everyone does it. Is that's just the default setting when you're starting a recording session. Those playback faders should all be at zero. So you're building the mix into the multi-track. Right. And that's the way that this guy worked throughout the 50s and 60s. Nice. And uh, he just had a lot of like little things that he would say that, well, for example, he's describing like a Fet limiter, you know, blah, blah, blah. And his, what we didn't realize is he was describing the 1176. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he was saying, here's the problem is, is that vowels are about 15 dB louder than consonants. Hmm. And in his mind, and in Bill Putnam's mind, that was like, how can you get a lead vocal to park on top of a mix, when right. you have one level for the vowels and another level for the consonants? <laughs> and so they in- came up with the eleven seventy six, right? Right. That's crazy. Now we all think about that. Now we just, we just, we just compress vocals because that's the sound. But mm-hmm. they were literally like trying to fix a problem, and right. to this day, that's really what it's about. Yeah. And so, yeah, things. Things that he said to me, I'm still figuring out what he meant. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> nice, so Malcolm nice. Chisholm, yeah, look him up. There's a little, and he also became a studio designer, and he had a lot of like just sort of really good common sense ideas about like uh, how to make a room sound good. You know mm. what I mean? Without without over absorbing it. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, you know, and, and things that today when I first walked into what was cello but I was mm-hmm. like this is what this guy was talking about like everything in all the rooms I'm yeah. like this is the right amount of diffusion some
0: absorption yeah.
1: you know the tile floors all this stuff was exactly what he was talking
0: about mm-hmm. nice so the next question is should be a easy one hopefully <laughs> uh oh your favorite reference track when you're going to a new studio or need to reference on a mix or something uh- <laughs>
1: it's it's kind of funny but uh you know it was back in black for like everyone else for a long time uh (laughs) as glorious as that track is i don't think it has the low end in it by today's standards right so i think it's kind of a toss-up between madonna's music and uh okay and no doubt's hello good nice just because those fill the speakers they fill the room Mm. they're just beautiful Right. beautiful mixes that are uh a really aggressive sounding but not like don't hurt your ear you know mm-hmm. what i mean and they sound good on my speakers
0: right i mean there's no right answer like yeah. as you know yeah. once you learn what something sounds like that's all that matters and you can age anything on that. I
1: just know that I get like a funny look if I'm like recording some like aggressive rock band, I go into the room and suddenly they're here and I'm like <laughs> <laughs> come out of the control room and I'm like, "Sorry man, this this is what I use." You know, or or if I want to see uh like okay, you know, like if I'm in a cheaper studio and uh okay, I'm going to turn up the volume to where I think it's rocking in the control room, mm. and then I'm going to go stand in the live room and see how much, like, see how well th- this build out is. Okay. You know what I mean? How
0: much bleed is in there? Just because
1: you got to know, like, hey, I think we need NS tens for the vocal when we do, when we right. cut vocals. I think I think we can't listen on the big speakers. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, or even in here, that's what I turn on and I go walk around my yard and I say, mm-hmm. like, do you think the neighbors are going to mind this? Because this is about as loud as this would ever get. You know. Right. So yeah, those, those are my. Okay. Ref- how about you? I got to know yours.
0: Uh, I actually use. There's an Australian band named Carnival. Okay. And they have a song. It's called New Day, and it's it's a rock song, but it it you know it has a lot of parts in it where there's a really mellow intro and really quiet part, mm-hmm. and then it gets super big and loud in the chorus and other sections, and
1: so it's kind of got all the it's all got this, all the things. Yeah. It's
0: got a lot of low end. It's got you know I I I'm really familiar with it, so I know mm-hmm. where things should should be sounding yeah once i go to new spot yeah. so
1: and and what speakers do you like i know that this is a non uh, we're going off off track that's but, fine
0: yeah. um i am currently using focals okay um i like them a lot i have the trio six i believe okay trio eight i don't yeah. know which one it is yeah but they're the the ones with the three drivers in it okay and i like them a lot because you can hook a foot switch in the back and turn off the woofers and so it, it just turns them into like orotones. Turns them into like orotones around its tones. Yeah. But it's just like the little, you know, four inch mid range and then the tweeter, and that's all you're listening to. Nice. And I use nice. those with, with their sub. And the mm-hmm. sub has the same feature where you can hit a foot switch and bypass the sub. Yeah. And so I can go from the sub and w- with a three way and big, beautiful sound, couple foot switches, and I'm essentially listening to orotones. So,
1: wow. Yeah. That's,
0: I, I don't
1: think that, uh, uh, There's no there's no right or wrong speaker choice. It's like me telling you like like you know you you might like Adidas and I might like like Nike. Like these are what fit my feet well. You know what I mean. I think I think what I don't do is uh, I don't switch monitors very often. In other words, once once I once I get on a pair, I I really Mm. stay with them for a long time. You Mm. know what I mean. And uh, and it's and it is the only thing that I really bring with me anymore. Like I always have to have my monitors unless it's like a Quick three-hour vocal session. Right, to right. Use whatever they have. You
0: right. know, cool. Uh, last question, just yep. to wrap up. What is one tidbit you would have for an upcoming engineer?
1: Well, to, to to really stick with the engineering side of it, mm-hmm. I think to uh, like it takes five seconds to know what's good gear, right? right. You know, something something based on API or Neve, mm-hmm. you know, more or less. You know, you know, get a get a good chain. And better to just have one really good one, right? Uh, than than a bunch of okay th- chains, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then from there you should just, as far as gear goes, just instruments. You right. know what I'm saying? Having good instruments is more important than having good microphones and good microphones. Just have one good chain, and then just focus on what's coming out of the speakers. Right. You know what I mean? And don't uh, all these magazines are tr- are in, are trying to sell you something. You know what I mean? All these websites and magazines are trying to sell you something. Mm-hmm. You need to spend a little bit of money on some software and then just make it work and go to town. Right. That's what I, that's, that's, that's my honest to God. Awesome. You know, yeah.
0: Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank yeah, man. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks I, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the show. As you know, I'm just getting this started and I'd love your feedback on how I'm doing, if I should keep this going, what your thoughts are feel free to visit proaudioprofiles.com and send me a message. Until next time.